Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online, thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego, the number two, and oil, and find out. Hi everyone, I'm Aaron Noonan. Welcome to the V8 Sleuth podcast powered by Timken, a world leader in bearings and mechanical power transmission products and services. Now, would you believe it, but this podcast marks one year since our very first episode of the V8 Sleuth podcast. Thank you. A big thank you to everybody who's listened across the journey. We've had great comments on the podcast. We've had some fantastic suggestions for future guests, and we've had plenty of people subscribe. But if you haven't, make sure you do subscribe and you won't miss an episode. Now, our guest on this one is Alan Gow, the head of the British Touring Car Championship. This is part one of two. So on part one, he talks about how he was first introduced to motorsport in Australia, about working with Captain Peter Jansen, the Group C Touring Car Privateer, about his friendship with Peter Brock and how that developed into working and running the Mobile One Racing Team. We talk about larders, yes, larders, and how they helped effectively save the Brock organisation. It's probably the only time you'll ever hear the word larder referred to on the V8 Sleuth podcast. And of course, you can't do a podcast with Alan Gow without a good story about Brad Jones. He talks about the time that he fired Brad Jones from the Mobile One Racing Team. Stay tuned for part two. We talk about super touring and the rise of the two-litre formula through the British Touring Car Championship in the 90s and ultimately why it failed. The National Motor Racing Museum Couch Racer questions will be wheeled out for Alan and the Motor Focus Top 10 Shootout as well. Now, Alan's based in the UK and we did this interview over the phone, so it's not to the usual quality of sitting face-to-face with someone, but I think you'll agree the content's fantastic. If you're keen in terms of Brock stories, there's plenty here for you to enjoy and plenty more. So here we go. Buckle up. Time to start. Part one of Alan Gow on the V8 Sleuth podcast, powered by Timken. Well, I'm sitting at V8 Sleuth headquarters tonight in Melbourne, and it's dark and wet and raining outside. And my guest, Alan Gow, is it sunny in the UK where I'm speaking to you from right now? It is actually. It's actually lovely outside. There's not a cloud in the sky. We're in the wrong place. Somehow I've got the wrong (laughs) part of the deal here. Uh, Thank you so much for (laughs) taking some time. I know at the moment the world's a very uh, strange and different place, and we've all got a little bit more time on our hands, so thank you for for giving me some of yours. It's hard to know where to start, Alan, with you, because there's so many things to talk about, so we'll dive around a little bit. But I guess the thing that springs to my mind most about you obviously we'll we'll talk about the british touring car championship we'll talk about your time with peter brock with james courtney but where did the whole alan gow car racing motor car fascination begin i I, was it as a young kid watching it on tv or what what started all this no um well no it was actually a friend of my sister's um it wasn't a boyfriend but a male friend of my sister's he was a car nut and uh, he was going to go to uh, Calder one day and, and ask if I wanted to come along. And I've never seen a motor race before. Um, so I just jumped in the car and went along to him. And from that day on, I was hooked. Um, and I think that was about 1970, 1969. Um, so I went along there. And I think the classic Calder days of Moffat, you know, um, Beachy, all this sort of stuff, Manton in his mini. Um Loved it. Got totally hooked on it. Um, and then I went and joined a local car club. 
Uh, it was called, the, it wasn't a local car club, it was one in Melbourne called uh, the Victorian Sporting Car Club. I don't think they exist anymore. Uh, and after, and that's when I started gophering at race meetings. So from about probably the next year, from 1971 onwards, I started uh, helping various drivers and teams out. What sort of drivers, what sort of cars, what sort of teams? And I guess how old are you at this stage? Um, so if it was, um, I was born in 1955, so if it was 1970, you know, I was just in the, in the teens. But um, uh, the first guy I helped out was uh, a guy called Noel Devine, um, who, who ran a Tirana XU1, uh, champion pest control, a purple Tirana XU1, LC. Uh, he was bloody quick too. I mean, Noel was a really quick driver. One of those guys that, that didn't have any technical ability, he was just quick. Uh, so I helped him in, in 71. Uh, and then for some reason in 72, I helped a guy called, and these are people that you meet through the through the car club, uh, a guy called Chaz Talbot, who was doing Formula 2 and then went on to Formula 5000. So I helped him out. Um, and as I said, I'm not, I'm not an engineer by any stretch of imagination. I was just doing gophering, checking tyres and everything else. Um, then after that, it was uh, Frank Porter uh, in another Tirana XU1. He was running uh, a Gary and Warren Smith uh, LJ XU1. Really, really nice guy. And that was my first year I ever went to Bathurst. Uh, not for the for the 500, but in those days they had the Easter meeting. Mm, yep. Uh, so we went up to Bathurst to compete in the Easter meeting, um, driving an old, uh, well, what an old nose, <laughs> driving a, a Gary and Warren Smith spare parts van, which is a 161 engined Holden van, three on the tree, towing the race, <laughs> towing the race trailer. And it barely made it up there, of course, because it was so slow. And then when we got up there, we decided we'd better go for a drive around the mountain to have a look at it because we'd never seen it before. So still with the still with the race car attached on the back, we attempted a lap of the mountain and didn't get past um, um, didn't get past turn two um, because <laughs> it, it, just, it just couldn't make it up the hill anymore. Um, so yeah, so that that was my early days. Uh, it takes me up to around about seventy three. After which, then I got involved with Peter Jansen. Ah, the captain. There's got to the be captain. some stories there. There's some fantastic stories there, um, I, I, and, and as with anything, you just you just meet people by chance. I was helping; I think I was helping Chaz Talbot in the in in the pits at uh, Sandown that that year, and Jansen rocked up with this old rally car, an XU1 rally car, which he used to call Saggy Sarah. Yep. Um, and he just rocked up, and he decided he wanted to go circuit racing with him. So it was a rally car, which he just stuck some race tyres on it, and he parked up next to us, uh, and he did his first practice session and came back, and, and, and he was asking me about tyre pressures, and I said, look, I, you know, I can only tell you what we're running on this Formula 2 Elfin. Um, <laughs> so, I put, so I put those tyre pressures into his car, um, and um, he, re- he went about three seconds faster, so he thought I was a genius after that, because <laughs> <laughs> he didn't have a clue. Um, and that's how I got involved with him. And that, I did um, I, I did about, um, I think probably from 74 to 78 with Peter. Uh, so we went, actually one went to the L, the SLR 5000 and then the L34. Um, 
And, um, yeah, they were great times. I, I ended up living uh, at the Windsor Hotel uh, with them because at that stage my, my day job was at Myers in Melbourne. Um, and uh, so working on Peter's cars on the weekends and in the evenings, it was actually convenient for me to also live in Melbourne. Uh, rather than out in the suburbs, living in the city. Uh, so I lived at the Windsor Hotel, and my God, they were some fantastic times. <laughs> I'm guessing you probably can't tell us about most of those times. Probably not. <laughs> I'd, I'd, I'd wait until a few people are dead. Um, <laughs> yeah, there, there was always the famous uh, 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 Peter Brock stag party, which is how I met um, uh, how I met Peter. Um, this, his, his bucks party was at. Uh, was, was at the Windsor. Um, that was that was great fun. But look, Peter was, you know, you know Peter. Um, he's uh, there's every night was was there's always something going on, and it was just a great time. Um, so I just, I, you know, it just suited me because I was working in the city to, to, to live there, and I lived on one in one of the towers in one of the corner towers. I had a room of my own in in, in, in this tower which he wasn't allowed to use by the hotel, but we, we, we used it anyway. Um, and uh, it was just a great time. So at this point, are you thinking motor racing's fun, it's a hobby, I enjoy it, but it's not my career, it's not my job, it's not where my, my life's going? Are, are you thinking more the business side of, of your life at that stage and car racing's a bit of fun? Yeah, absolutely. I, um, I had no intention of being in, in, in motor racing as a career. Um, it was it was a thing I enjoyed doing on the weekends, um, but you know my my love was I was I had a job at Myers uh, and and I did that because it was good management training. Um, but I was always involved in, in cars, car dealerships, uh, selling cars. Uh, never thought that I could make any money out of motor racing, so I actually didn't even try. And and but circumstances evolved later on where where I did. Um, but um, you know and. Like so many people will, will say the same thing. I'm so fortunate that my sport and my love turned into a into my profession. I can I, I can I can live and work and in, in, in doing the thing I love doing. Make your vocation your vacation. I guess it's a bit of a secret. Yeah, exactly. Of life, not everybody yeah. gets to do that. Uh, one of the things yeah. that popped up in recent times, and I did think of your name here. Am I right in remembering, and certainly I was only a very, very young guy, so it's all from recollection of magazines and things I've read. Very recently, the Australian Muscle Car magazine ran a, a cover car story with the restoration of the Craven Mild Alan Grice uh, Group C Commodore that he raced at Bathurst. Now, am I right that that car ended up with Neil Cunningham and you were involved with him in, in the early 80s? Yeah, correct. Um, so that was... After Peter, I, I did some. I, I helped a mate of mine out, uh, Jim Keogh, um, for a couple of years, just doing uh, the, the longer distance events, Sandown and Bathurst. Um, and then at one Bathurst, that must have been, and I'm really bad on years, but it must have been '81 or '82. I met Neil at Bathurst um, uh, and sort of took him under under my wing. He bought. The, uh, the Grice's Commodore at that stage. He'd, he'd gone to Bathurst, tried to qualify. He was on the reserve list in those days. There was a reserve list, uh, but didn't get into the field. Um, but uh, I sort of, sort of took him under my wing then, and, um, uh, and and took him through a season of on the Commodore as much as he could afford it. Then went to into Formula Ford. Uh, we bought a Formula Ford together. 
uh, did a season of that, and then I sort of pushed him over to the UK to, to further his career. And, and Neil was a really great guy. You know, he was he was such a lovely, lovely, lovely guy in every in every respect. You'd never find anyone who says a bad word against him. And um, and a really, really quick driver. Uh, and he so he went over to the UK, spent the rest of his life in the UK. Sadly, he passed away a couple of years ago. Um, and uh, made a very good career out of it in the UK. In all this period, Alan, did you get behind the wheel? Did you have a go yourself? And and, and I don't know if you wanted to go anywhere with it or do it for, for a bit of fun, or were you just keyed about helping other people and, and just being involved? Um, I had a bit of a go myself, but to be honest, I I didn't want to spend my own money doing it. You know, I was smart I, man. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was more I was more interested in the business aspect of it than I, I was in driving, and you know I think I was a good driver, but I was never a great driver, and and I was never going to make a career out of it. So you know I just did it for fun, and I still drive a bit for fun now. But uh, uh, no, it was it was always it was always business came first. What did you race when you did race back in the day? No, uh, all sorts of things. People that you know, just friends that were racing cars at the time, minis and everything else. Um, but just, just anything. Um, occasionally, an, an XU1 Tirana, and uh, you know, I was trying to get the other car. There was some other car I can't remember. Um, mainly a Mini and a Tirana with the two. We will find some photos and we will post them to social media. Don't yeah, you? I'd, I'd be fascinated them. if you can. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, we've got wide reach here at V8 Sleuth. You never know who we don't. Okay. Hey, one of the people cool. that came on your radar. Uh, in your car dealership time, I think you were a Mazda dealer at the time, uh, was a very young Paul Radisich. Where, where did that all start? Because, of course, your paths would cross many times in the, the years to follow with Brock Sierra team and the British Touring Car Championship yep. with Andy Rouse. Uh, tell me about when that was and how the rat – he wasn't the rat back then. He was young Paul from New Zealand uh, when he first popped yeah. up on your radar. Okay, so that came about through a chap called Graham Watson who was then the Rolt importer for Australia. Uh, and I'd met Graham. I don't know where, but I'd met him around around the traps. Um, and Graham introduced Paul to me. Uh, and at that stage, I was running a Mazda dealership in Ferntree Gully. Uh, and Paul uh, had an, a Relt RT4 uh, and came and saw me and asked me for sponsorship. And I said, look, I can't give you much money, but we'll give you the use of our premises and the workshop and everything else to, to prepare your car because, of course, he'd He'd moved over from New Zealand, so and then we became we became very good mates, very close friends. Um, so I got involved with him through the Mazda dealerships. Um, I later, uh, when I got involved with Peter, I later got uh, Paul uh, a co-driver in the team. And then when I went to the UK uh, in the early nineties, um, I got in the, the the drive with with Andy Rouse on and the Ford Works team, and, and the rest is history. Put him on the map big time, didn't it? Two-time world champion in '93 and '94 with uh, the Mondeo yeah, program. It was incredibly successful for him, um, and we, you know, we're, we're very close mates. He's one of my best mates, and uh, he, um, yeah, we lived, you know, just literally around the corner from each other. He used to spend all our time together, and, and Paul was just a quiet assassin. You know, he was <laughs> he was really quiet outside of a car, and you, you, you obviously know him. Mm. In a car, it was take no prisoners, and um, and in British touring car championship racing in those days, and it still is, it's it's really intense. And and Paul was very very good at sticking his arms out 
and uh, and uh, and and making a fist of it. So he he, uh, yeah, he did incredibly well, as you said, winning two two World Cups um, in a car that had never won the British Touring Car Championship. And I think, if I remember right, the plan was originally for that Mondeo to be a um, a rear wheel drive car, but then it was all changed to go down the front wheel drive pathway. So it took a while for that car to even come on stream. Yeah, and that's that's Andy Rouse. You know, Andy, it's very hard to change Andy's mind on anything. Mm -hmm. And uh, he was convinced that front wheel drive cars were were never going to be as quick as rear wheel drive cars. So he just wanted to to make it uh, make it a rear wheel drive from the word go. He just didn't like front wheel drive cars. Uh, So that was that that wasted, I think, about six months of their first season until he eventually realised that that was a folly and uh, and changed it to to back to front wheel drive. You mentioned before, and uh, we sort of briefly touched on it, but I want to rewind. It's actually one of the popular questions that I've been asked from our our fans on social media, was asking about yeah. how you and Brock first met. Uh, and you, you you just touched on it before about the, the Bucks party at, at Jansen's Plus. So I guess that's what, mm. early 70s or somewhere around there. And, and then were you mates there during that 70s period or did you just cross paths here and there because you no, were we around just, the racing? Yeah, we just crossed paths. Look, I, I met him through Jansen. Um, um, and we just, we just had a nodding acquaintance and said hello and all that sort of stuff. We weren't mates. Um, uh, and there's one year that um, then just shortly after that, uh, probably the next year, he and he and Michelle, uh, his his wife, uh, wanted a pool for their new house in Eltham, and so Peter contacted me because one of the departments I was managing at that stage was Myers as a pool department. So I got him the right deal, and he got a pool in at Eltham. I think the pool lasted longer than his marriage, um, and he. Uh, he uh, so that became so our friendship sort of evolved from there, um, and we became better friends as, as the years progressed, uh, right up to the point when I started getting involved in his business. Uh, there's so many Brock stories. Everyone's got a million Brock stories, and lots of them have been told over the years. What's one that perhaps isn't as well known, or one that springs to mind that you have a chuckle about every now and then when you think about it? Oh, there's probably one. Look, there, there are plenty of them, but I can't. I can't. Um, there's, there's plenty. There's plenty that I wouldn't want to tell. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, just trying, I'm just trying to think. Uh, look, uh, the time we bought the Sierras was, it was actually a good one. Um, so we'd come off the year of running the uh, the BMWs. We took over the BMWs from Gardner's team. And, and clearly, they were never going to be outright contenders. So we we, we, we decided we, we had to buy some some Sierras. So Brock, myself, and Mort, our, our team manager, flew over to Europe to first go to Andy Rouse's in England, and then over to Eggenberger in Switzerland. Um, we had appointments lined up for them both. Uh, so we went to the UK first. Uh, Brock got on like a house on fire with Andy uh, and after one day made the decision, okay, we're going to buy his cars. I said, well, hang on, we haven't been to Regenberg yet. Um, he said, no, no, I want to go home and take my house anyway. So so, so <laughs> instead of, instead of you know, going through the whole process and working out which is actually the best deal and the best car and the best, 
he decided he liked Andy, he liked the cars, I'm going, getting on the plane, going back home. So back home the next day, painting his house. So Mort and I are still left there. Um, so we had to get in a transit van, drive over to Switzerland, meet up with Rudy Eggenberger and go through the whole charade of looking like we were going to buy a couple of cars um, yeah, in order to at least find some information out about him. Uh, but that was just sort of typical of Brock. He would just leave big decisions whenever he's thin. Um, um, so he would just leave those decisions to everyone else. He made the decision he wanted to buy the Rouse cars, jumped on the plane. Painting a house is much much more important to him than making any other decisions in that respect and left it with us. And and he actually, to be fair, he actually said, look, if you think the Eggenberger cars are, are a better buy, then buy them, but I'm happy with the Rouse cars. But uh, you know, there's, that's not a great story in as much as some of the ones I could say, but I'm, 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 <laughs> I've got to be... I've got to be pretty careful. No, that's understandable. And you got involved after the, the Holden divorce, the, the infamous uh, February 1987 when Holden decided to, to pull the pin on the factory backing for what yeah. had been the Holden dealer team for so many years. And he pressed on with, with Mobile, who were an amazing supporter of his for, for so many years. They stuck by him no matter what. So was that a case of he called you, you called him? How did that all start that you ended up effectively running? Um, look, I, it, I was doing the... Um I was doing property development at that stage, so I had some time on my hand. Uh, on my hands, so I, I just called him up and said, "Do you want a hand?" You know, um, because a lot of people had left the organisation at that stage, um, and and knowing that Peter hated the business aspect of of, of business, um, so I just said, "Look, do you want a hand?" He said, yeah, please come on down. So I, I went down there, and I thought I was just going to give him a hand for a few days, and it ended up being a few years. Um, and I still haven't been paid for it. But but he uh, he just if you know anyone that knows Peter knows the fact that he he, he doesn't want to get involved in the nitty gritty of the business aspect. You know he's, he's he's much more strategic and having a look at you know, how you can do a design on a car rather than how do we make it work financially. You know, um, so he was quite happy uh, for myself and Bev. Um, to, to, to try and work out how to go forward. Um, so I got involved in that. I ended up, uh, you know, being there full-time, um, taking over, running the business, trying to get him out of the situation he had got himself into, uh, which we eventually did. Um, and, of course, you know, we had the famous Bathurst win that year, um, which was, you know, the, the stories you could tell about how we got through that year were, were extraordinary. You know, we had less than no money. Um, all of our credit cards were, were absolutely packed to the rafters. Um, I remember at, on, on, at Bathurst, we couldn't even buy, we weren't even allowed to buy fan belts and spark plugs, or we didn't get, so we had free spark plugs and those, but anything, any holding parts we weren't allowed to buy because uh, holding just turned to tap off. So on the Friday night and the Saturday night, Mort would, uh, we had a bit of a deal with Cooper's Brewery at that stage, so Mort would go around with the, a slab of beer under his arm, swapping uh, swapping slabs of beer for, for car parts. Um, that's how broke we were. Um, and, uh, you know, you know the story. You know, the, the, the second car that uh, we didn't think would last more than 10 or 15 laps ended up winning the race with, with Peter at, at the wheel. And, and, that, and that, 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 that was a big win in so many respects, not only for, for, his, for, his, uh, for his sanity, 
but also for the business because that actually saved the business because that 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 put the the motivation of mobile to keep on supporting him. Um, that showed people that Brock is not going to go away, and um, and uh, and that put some money back into our pockets. We'll get back to the podcast in just a moment, but I wanted to quickly tell you about our good friends at Timken, a world leader in bearings and mechanical power transmission products and services. Now, you might know their name and recognise their logo, but did you know that Timken bearings are used in some of the world's largest wind turbines, some standing as tall as 260 metres, that's almost twice the height of the Sydney Harbour Bridge, and with rotors as big as 220 metres in diameter. That's almost the distance from the start line to Hell Corner at Mount Panorama. Now these rotors turn on big shafts and at each end is a massive Timken tapered roller bearing. The biggest one with an outside diameter of 3.425 metres. That's about three quarters the length of a supercar race car. The bearings have to be perfectly reliable in withstanding massive loads and in extreme conditions like in the North Sea, where a single turbine is expected to produce enough renewable sourced energy to power 16,000 European homes year-round. We'll bring you some more cool facts about Timken in each episode of the V8 Sleuth podcast this year. Now, it's back to the podcast. How bad, from a business point of view, was the situation when you, you walked in the door? Oh, it was shocking. Um, you know, the... the, the, the the business was borrowed up to its hilt. Um, the cash flow had stopped dead. Um, and, uh, you know, he had a very big premises in those days down in Bertie Street in Port Melbourne, so he had huge rent to pay, uh, had a huge staff bill. It was broke. Um, and and we had a saviour that knocked on our door one day, and it's funny how these things work out. And, and it was a guy from a company called Lou Dreyfus who'd, who'd just become the importer for larger cars in Australia um, and uh, was looking for um, a distribution network for, for his cars and uh, uh, so we did a deal with him. It was actually done on the on the Friday of Bathurst. Uh, the contract was signed where they took over the premises, uh, paid Peter a, a, a chunk of money to, to do that and also paid Peter to put his name to the famous Lada Samara, the Brock Lada Samara, which it goes down in history is the worst car, the car he's ever put his name to. But, but uh, so that that got us out of that situation. And uh, you know he was very very lucky that we found someone like him, uh, or someone like that company, uh, to, to get us to, to get him out of it. Because other than that, he would have gone personally bankrupt. Mm. So things were things were very bad. Um, so that got us out of those liabilities. Uh, and enable us to then restructure. Uh, so we we uh, moved the race team out to near the airport, and uh, we set up a little company called Oztech Automotive out in Coburg, Peter and myself, uh, to convert Ford road cars, which we did for uh, eighteen months. Some people probably the long-held Holden fans would have probably wanted what a Brock Falcon. This is sacrilegious, but. It's business. That's that's just life. I don't. Do, you know what I think? I, um, I I was surprised at the time there wasn't more backlash than it was. But but by then, Peter was driving a, a, a Peter was driving a, a BMW and then a Ford. So people were used to him not driving a Holden and not, not and not being associated with the name Holden. 
it'd be different if he'd gone straight from uh, building Holdens to straight to building Fords, um, and and still was racing Holdens on the racetrack. That'd be that would have been different. But you know, he changed his allegiance to to a manufacturer on the racetrack, so that made it a little bit easier. Um, but you know, it wasn't a massively successful business by any stretch of imagination. I think we only built probably two hundred and fifty cars or something like that. Um, but it but it provided a good income and and it provided a bit of sanity into his business life again. There's people out there, I'm sure, with Brock Larders. There must be a, a fan club of them somewhere or a, a group or a car club. There must be, what, three of them left, I would have thought, by now? <laughs> I think you're being optimistic. Um, <laughs> I would have thought they were all rusted away by now. Um, they, they were shocking cars, honestly. Um uh, you know, and and Peter being Peter, he was. This is a, this is a company that was going to save him, so he put all his energies into it, and he'd never hear a bad word about it. And and I would say to him at the time, really, mate, you can't put your name to this. No, 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 it's going to be a great car. You know what Peter's like, <laughs> always positive. Um, so uh, you know, and he was convinced it was a great little car. And, uh, the rest of the the rest of the population didn't agree with him, but. Um, it, it, but you know you have to do what you have to do, um, and and Peter was pragmatic enough to know that, hey, if I've got to do a broccolata, if that's going to save my skin, then that's fine with me. Mm. Were there any other options in that time, Alan? Clearly, the the Sierra that evolved as the car that he moved into and the team uh, took on was the car to have in Group A because it was dominant around the world. It was unbelievably quick. The BMWs were outdated. The Commodores weren't competitive. Were there any other options in that time, or was the Sierra the only thing you could really do? <clears throat> at, at that stage, the Sierra was was the only car to have. Uh, that, that was a dominant car in, in in Group A racing at the stage around the world. Um, I don't think the Nissans were, were at that stage were anything much more than a, a Japanese only thing, and and they weren't they weren't that very well developed. The Sierras were winning everything, so they were the only the, the only real choice to have. The Sierras had been the the dominant car, just winding back to to Bathurst that weekend in in eighty seven. And one of the things that probably goes overlooked among the 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 story of Brock winning the well, he didn't win the race on the day; he finished third on the day and no. then won it later no. on. Did you feel on the day that you were going to win it, or were you just wrapped that third was a damn good result considering the year that the team had had? No, we were just thrilled that the third was, was. We knew that there was an issue bubbling along in the background regarding the uh, the Sierra's uh, front guards, front arches, um, uh, and so we knew that there was an issue going on in the background. But 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 we never you, you can never run a race based on the fact that you think that the other people are going to get thrown out because they could have equally got a fine or just whatever that you don't know. So we we. Um, we never thought that it was going to turn into a win at all. Um, but once we knew that, though, that once we knew that the charges against the cars, the Eggenberg cars, was more serious than what we thought they were, then we could smell a victory. But that was, you know, days, weeks later. Mm. The third on the day was that, that was as good as a win to us. The car that ended up there finishing third was the, the second car. And as you said before, it's often been talked about and uh, written about that it was kind of the, the cobbled together car to put two cars on the grid for mobile and fly the flag. And the thing that 
I guess I remember strongly from it because I, I have a, and you do too, a, a close association with is Neil Crompton, and he'd been driving the team's second car, but he missed out on Bathurst because he didn't have enough. I think he was one signature short on his license mm. and didn't get to drive that car. Do you remember that scenario and how that all unfolded in the lead up? I do, and I remind him about it all the time. Um, but but he, um, yeah, he he looked. He, he he did some club events. He did a few other things. He, he was desperate to get his license done in time for the event, but he just missed out, as you said, by I think one signature or one event or whatever. Um, but but that second car was really only a, a start line special. It was it was it was built to to uh, in order to satisfy our contractual. Uh, obligations with mobile to, to, to field two cars and it was literally just built out of all the old stuff we took out of the other car so in those days we didn't have much to do with life and with components but but if they were life they would be well out of life if you know what I mean um, so none of us thought that it was going to do any good um, the two guys in the car Peter McLeod John Crook you know we 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 knew that they weren't going to do well in the race, so we just actually didn't spend any time on the car preparing it very well. Um, so um, when Brock jumped in the car during the course of the race when the number one car um, I had an issue, when Brock jumped in the car, he said, look, I'll just drive the wheels off it and just have some fun because he knew it wasn't going to last either. He had he didn't think for a minute it was going to last. Um, and the wet weather played into it. You know, the wet, the wet weather, you know, as you know, takes away some of the strain on the mechanical components. So, so that 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 helped a lot. Um, I think if it was a dry race, all race, it probably wouldn't have made it. Well, it got wet. It got very wet there. It got, got wet. I think there's still people. Well, it just becomes. Out. It just becomes when, when, as you know, when it becomes wet, it's just easier on the car. So um, he was able to, to to throw it around. He wasn't. He wasn't. Um, uh, he wasn't. He wasn't taking any chances. It might have looked spectacular on the on, on the track, but you know what Brock's like. He, he always drives well within himself. Um, and um, if it, I, I'm convinced that if it wasn't wet, that car wouldn't have lasted. Um, but uh, you know, it got, I think the last third of the race was wet, and that saved it from from you know, tearing itself apart. And that car does live on. It actually lives in the US now, and. Uh... Spent a lot of time, I think, in the US. Yeah, it does. Yeah, who would have thought? Brocky's ninth Bathurst winner lives in the states with uh, an ex-Pat Aussie, Kenny Habul, who who races GT cars and is a very successful uh, businessman over there. And he he's got a deep love of uh, of that era and those cars, and uh, has it in his collection in did, North Carolina. Did that come out of the Champion collection? Uh, no, it came from the Bowden collection. So the the car that was in oh, the okay. Champion collection was the zero five car that started the race, but right, didn't okay. finish. Yeah, which which actually right. spent some time in the British Touring Car Championship the following year. Funnily enough, so um, <laughs> they get they get around. Yeah, they do. They um, do. So yeah, look, they were great. They were good times. Um, um, looking back on it, you know, you sort of look at how we got through that year was or those two years was was it was just awful, but. You know, if if you can get through that and and get those sort of results, then you know the the future is always looking better. So after that, it gave us the impetus to get out of the hold and get into the BMWs. A mistake in hindsight. Um, Peter thought they were going to be a better car than they were, um, but the Sierras was 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 the thing that really lit his fire again. Um, 
he was he was uh, he had a, he had a year of a frustrating year in the BMWs. Uh, when we got into the Sierras, he absolutely loved them. You know, and, and who didn't in those days? You know, they had tons of horsepower, not a huge amount of grip, and they were great fun to drive. In recent times, mm-hmm. Mr. Crompton and Mr. Jones from Aubrey have let a cat out of the bag of a story that I don't think they ever planned to tell you or for you to know about. Now, it's been well told on uh, – Bradley told it on the Shannon's Legends of Motorsport TV series that we did here in Australia. Uh, Neil, I know, has uh, mentioned on a podcast or two in recent times and some live events. But did you know the way that those two got together in terms of getting Bradley into the Mobile Sierra with your team? Did you know what was going on there? I, I knew, well, the story I know is that Brad parked himself at, um, at our premises and, and we couldn't get rid of him. So he just, he, just, he just kept on turning up and spending time with us in order to, eventually we said, we, we relented and said, okay, you drive for us. But he, he absolutely just, just planted himself at, at, uh, at uh, Austec then. And um, and you know made himself part of our organisation without us even knowing about it. Um, that's that's what I remember. I don't know what the what the backstory well, is. Well, well, the story goes, and so they may have not squared this up with you, but I'll be the good guy here and, and tell you the story. So so they tell that so Crompton obviously does the deal to go and drive for the Holden Racing Team for TWR. He's been driving sure. for Brock for a year or two, and he's sweating on walking in to tell you and Brock the news that he's, he's leaving. So he parks the car around the corner. Bradley's with him. He says, right, I'm going in. In he goes, has the chat, comes back to the car. How'd it go? Not good. Didn't go down well. Mm, okay. They wait 10 minutes and Bradley walks in and says, oh, hey, guys, how are you going? Uh, oh, you'll never guess. Crompton's just left. Really? Yeah. Who's going to drive? How about you? Okay. That's the way they tell it. Now, is there a bit yeah, of sugar I, I, on that I, one, or, or do you think that's right? Um, I didn't know the bit about being parked around the corner <laughs> and, 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 and all that sort of stuff, but that, that doesn't surprise me at all um, with those two. But, but, yeah, I can remember that's how Brad got the drive because, as I said, Brad was always with us. You know, he'd always he, – he, he would park on our doorstep um, – Waiting for us to, you know, uh, give him a drive. So yeah, I'm, 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 I'm. That probably rings a bell with me. Um, I, I don't doubt it at all. I, but I'll bet you Brad hasn't told you the story about how he got sacked out of the drive. Well, I don't think we've heard that one, and I've got a funny feeling you might need to tell us that one. So it was the Adelaide Grand Prix, uh, just a support race. Um, um, Peter had decided, for whatever reason, that he wanted to have Andrew Medecki in the car the following year. Andrew's, Andrew's a great driver and a, and a, and a great guy. Um, but he, he he decided that Brad had a, a bit of a bad run in the car that year. So he, uh, he des- I think he blamed Brad more more for more for it than, than anything else. So so he decided that he wanted to have Andy in the car the following year. Um, and as with all the dirty work, Peter said, "You need to tell Brad. You need to get, you know, you need to give Brad some news." So Brad and I were at that stage. He didn't fly around. We always drove everywhere. So we we drove back from Adelaide to Melbourne, and Peter drove back too. So we're all sort of driving back in a convoy. 
And I thought, oh, there's no better. There's, no, there's not going to be a good time to do this. So, I, and Brad knew that something was going on. He knew that there, that there was there was talk of, of Medeki joining the team. So, before we'd even driven out the gates of the circuit, he said to me, "Go and tell me, have I got to drive next year or not?" And I said, "No, nah, I'm sorry, mate. You haven't. You know, you, 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 you've been you've, you've, you've been sacked." You know? um, and of course, then we had a 500 mile journey, or whatever it is, on the way back, oh, no. <laughs> with, with him fuming in the car next to me, um, and 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 picking apart every element of, of 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 the conversation for the next however long it takes to drive from Adelaide to Melbourne, night, you know, six hours, eight hours back. Um, and Peter's ahead, so at that stage, and Brad was driving our car, our rental car. Um, and Peter was ahead and, and one of the back roads on the way back. Uh, and Peter had stopped to have a, a leak on the side of the road. And, and Brad saw in a distance that, that, that Peter's car was on the side of the road, on the opposite side of the road for some reason. So, and saw that Peter was on the opposite side of the road having a, having a leak into the bushes. So he was still furious, so he started aiming his car for, for Brock onto the other side of the road. So he's going down, going on the opposite side of the road, wrong side of the road, heading for Brock. Brock's looking over, seeing a car heading towards him, and just at that stage, there's a cop car coming the other way. <laughs> it all got, and so Brock is now waving Brad away to say, "Go back to the other side of the road, mate, because there's a cop coming." Brad can only see Brock in his field of vision, um, and eventually, at the last minute, saw that there was a cop car and went back to the other side of the road, put his foot down, went away, and the cop never followed us. Um, but that was it was a funny story in as much as I said I, I should have waited until long, you know, until we got into Melbourne to tell Brad. Um, uh, instead, I did the silly thing and told him as we went out the gates uh, at Adelaide. And had to sit next to him for the next eight hours, you know, listening to him, sounding off about what an injustice it is. But anyway, he got over it. I bet you never did that again and waited till the end of all road trips to deliver any no, bad news. It's, no. a, it's a good that, tip that for everybody. Was a, that, was a really, that was a really bad move from my, on my behalf. But um, it was, um, and, it's just, and I said to him at the time, time, I said, look, we'll laugh about it later. And he said, yeah, yeah, we never will. I'll never laugh about this. Um, but, but we do, you know. But Brad, Brad and Neil are both good mates, and, and we always have a giggle about the old times. We have plenty of giggles with those two. They certainly keep us entertained in this part of the world. Uh, and they speaking, are. And speaking of parts of the world, it's pretty much around that point, uh, once the, the Sierra program had finished with Brock, that you <clears throat> headed to the UK and you initially went to work for, for Andy Rouse. Was that because you'd met him through dealing with the, the Sierra program? Yeah, but I didn't go to the UK to, to work for Andy. I, I went to the, I'd sold my partnership in the in the race team and in the Oztec business. Um, and so at that stage I had no ties. I wasn't married, didn't have a business. So um, I decided just to do what a lot of Australians do and just come over here for 12 months and have a look around to around Europe and all that sort of stuff. So <clears throat> there was never any grand plan to come and work for Andy or do anything over here. Um, so uh, I came over here, <clears throat> looked up Andy just to have a, a, a chat to him and, and, and Andy uh, said, look, why don't you come and work for me for a while? So I did. Um, uh, we built some special Andy Rouse Sierras, uh, a bit like Brock used to do. 
he was he was always very jealous of what what Peter achieved, uh, or not jealous is probably the wrong word. Always admiring of what Peter achieved on the road cars. So he built a couple of hundred special Rouse Sierras uh, for a year or two, um, but that was never planned. You know, I just I just came over here for twelve months, and I'm still here. Thirty years later, yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and that's how think that's how things evolve. You know, I'm, yeah, what happened then is that. So I went along to a couple of race meetings with Andy, um, not in any official capacity, just to have a look what he was doing because I wasn't involved in his racing teams as such. I was involved in the road car business. So I went along and, uh, and I just saw that the BTCC at that stage was, was was pretty underwhelming. It was a good little championship, but it was run by the governing body, you know, the, the MSA, which was which is you know the, the, the UK's version of CAMS. It was run by the governing body. Um, so it wasn't run particularly commercially well or anything like that. Um, and so I had a look at it and thought, God, you could do something with this because this has really got the makings of a great championship. Uh, it's been around for so long. Um, so I then went uh, and approached the MSA uh, about taking over the championship, uh, leasing the championship off and taking the rights over for, for it. And of course, they said to me, "Well, who, who are you? I don't. We don't know who you are. You've been in this country for eighteen months. Um, you know, you, you know, we, we need we need someone with some more substance behind them to to, to discuss it with." So I got Andy, uh, David Richards, um, a guy called Vic Lee, and another team owner called David Cook. So David Cook owned the Vauxhall team. Andy obviously ran the the the, uh, the Fords. Um, uh, David Richards ran the ProDrive BMW team. So I got them together as sort of silent partners, if you like, went back to the MSA and said, okay, now I've got these people behind me. Uh, and they said, okay, now you're talking. Uh, so we put it, we put, uh, we formed a company called Toka to, to take over the championship. Um, and, and sort of the rest is history as far as that's concerned. But of course, because they were uh, involved in, running teams in the championship, they couldn't have any involvement in running the championship. So it was all left to me and I was silent partners. And eventually did they sell out because they were running race teams and it all became yours or how did that work? <clears throat> no, it didn't all become mine. They were always partners in it until we sold it. We sold it in in 2000. Um, they, they uh, in 2000, there's a big American company called... Uh, Octagon came to the UK and decided they were going to make a, a lot of money out of motorsport, and they they had huge pockets. Uh, so they bought um, five circuits in the country, you know, Brands Hatch, you know, all these other circuits in the country. They bought uh, the lease for Silverstone. They bought the rights to the Grand Prix, and then they wanted the BTCC as well. So they came and made me an offer, which we, I couldn't refuse. Um, to, to buy the BTCC of us. So we sold the BTCC to them, or sold Toga to them. Um, and, um, and I retired for about two or three years. Um, so that was the end of Toka in that respect. And they did very badly out of motorsport. They, it, was, it was just one of those deals where a company with a lot of money thought they were going to make even more money, but they did it without any knowledge. Uh, and they lost a fortune uh, in all Everything they did, including the BTCC, but lost their fortune at Silverstone, lost their fortune at Brands Hatch, and they were, they walked out uh, three years later, having ripped up about seven 
No, about $370 million, so probably $800 million, uh, having lost on that on this exercise. So they offered me uh, Toka to take it back, and so I took Toka back, uh, not not with uh, the other uh, four partners, but just, just on my own. Um, and that's how I took it back. And when I took Toka back and took the BTCC back, it was in pretty horrible condition. Um, it, uh, it had 12 cars on the grid. It had half an hour highlights on TV on some obscure channels. It was, it was just in horrible condition. Um, and so I'd spent the next few years building it back up to what it is. And you've done an amazing job of it to the point where it's a, a championship that, and for our listeners who might not follow it as closely, because we don't we don't see it. it is a, it is here on television a little bit through SBS through Speed Week where we see some highlights mm. in the the weeks after that the races actually occur. But you've clearly, and we'll touch on the Super Touring era very shortly because there's a pile of cool stuff to talk about there. But basically, it's about trimming your cloth to fit what cloth people can deal with in terms of their budgets, in terms of. Uh, how the I mean the world's very different now than it was a month ago, but uh, that's one of the things that you, you really implemented there. Control engine, control parts, made it cost effective, and you've got thirty cars every weekend, and other people wanting to get on the grid with a bunch of different cars, and it's like the BTCC of old again. Yeah, we, look, it's a really it's a really successful championship, and we can talk about the Super Touring era in a minute. But the current era of the BTCC, we have uh, a full grid. We locked it. We locked the grid up at thirty cars. We, we could we could have thirty three or thirty four, but uh, I, I put a limit of the, on the grid of thirty cars. Um, we have eleven different makes of car on the grid. Um, five of those are manufacturers and uh, entries. Sorry, five makes of manufacturer entries. You know, those thirty cars at any one race meeting will will be will all qualify within a second of each other, within usually about eight tenths of each other, and that's quite normal for supercars. But you've got to remember that's that's front wheel drive, rear wheel drive. You know, three different body shapes: saloon, coupe, you know, estate. Uh, uh, um, we call it over here the station wagons. All these sort of variables, we've got so many variables that we have, um, different engines, all that. So uh, to have all those variables compete within a second of each other is, is astounding. Um, and that's why the racing is so good. But, but we, can, we strictly control areas like we, the suspension is a, is a, is a, is a, uh, is a bespoke suspension that I will have to, to have to use, uh, gearbox engine is all, is all, well, actually, I'm wrong on the engine. Half of them can use a, a, a Toka engine, which is a spec engine, and the other half use their own engines. Um, but in any case, it's 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 a it's a very viable proposition. It's a very big championship over here. It's the biggest championship in the UK. We have um, we're on uh, all day live on live free to air on the major commercial network ITV. So our TV coverage is extraordinary. Um, we have huge crowds for, for over here. We're not, we don't do street races like you do in Australia. So they're all just at race circuits. Uh, and our average crowd over here is 35,000, 40,000. Uh, they're fine. But the final at Brown Satchel left 50,000. Um, which for a race circuit over here is very good. Uh, and it, and it's, it just, it just, it just presses all the buttons that people want. 
things have changed now, of course, with, with what we've gone through over the last 12 months, uh, last, sorry, last 12 months, last four, four weeks. Um, and, you know, obviously, I think for the next year or two, it won't be as good as what we've just had, but that's the economics of the, of, of the situation. The good thing about it is, is that is that it is the, the, the cost capping that we do on on the BTCs is, is really strict, um, and it doesn't matter how much money you got as a as, as a team for a budget. You actually can't spend it. Um, uh, you know, with testing restrictions, with with technical regulations that we've got, if if a team had three times as much money as the other as another team, they wouldn't do any better. There's probably a few of those teams who uh, will find other things that they want to want to spend money on. But do you think that's one of the things, and I know it's a question that popped up from a lot of people, Alan, on, on socials, that uh, sitting back here in Australia, I've seen what you've, you've done with the BTCC. Clearly there's learnings that we need to have here. This is Aaron's personal opinion. Uh, in supercars and in other categories, not just supercars to... To, to point the, the finger at, at that category. But uh, we've, and if we weren't going to do it before, and if we weren't thinking of doing it before, we sure as heck need to now because we're in a very different world than we were four, five, six weeks ago, whatever it was. So um, it's pretty important to have something that will fit what your market is and what you can do with it. And, and now that we're in a, a different world, it's, it's going to be even tougher. So being closer to the mark is better than being further away. There's a lot of other categories and big ticket sports in terms of motorsport are going to find out in the next few months. Yeah, look, and we went through this after the Super Touring era. And the Super Touring era, you know, when that, when that finished, you know, we, we, we all had hangovers from that, you know. Um, uh, so we had we, there were great learnings from the Super Touring era of how not to waste money um, and then how to really appreciate what actually the team, what actually the viewers and the spectators want to see. And we did a lot of surveys. We did a lot, and a lot of it was gut feeling anyway. But we looked at it. We looked at things like, I don't know, the engine. No one on the side of the spectator banks cares about the internal workings of the engine. Right? Um, no one cares what the gearbox is like. No one cares what sort of diff a car has. No one cares what the electronics are like. No one cares how much telemetry there is between the cars and, and, and the pits or if there is any. All the, all the spectator wants to see is good, hard, close racing. And if you can deliver that while stripping away all the unnecessary costs, then you've found the formula. Um, and that's what we did with the current era of the BTCC. We just looked at it and, and, and said, look, who cares if the gearboxes are all the same? Who cares if half the... If half the uh, the field have the same engine. It, it doesn't matter to anyone. No one differentiates be- between those things anymore, apart from the, apart from the the, the dyed in the wool, you know, rev head. Um, but if you want to provide entertaining motorsport, then take away all of the the, the 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 engineering masturbation exercise and just put on entertaining motorsport, and that's what we do. So your entertainment one technology eighth. Somewhere down there, a long way down. Eight hundred. Yeah, a long way down. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's the BTCC is not a technological exercise. It used to be, and it used to be in the super touring era, and and we the learnings we we got from that was that was such a waste of money. Um, 
So it's it's entertaining sport. Um, it's not a technological exercise. There are no learnings from the BTCC going back into manufacturers for road cars, and I think that's pretty rare in all of motorsport anymore. So so why why go down that technological route? You know, things like real time telemetry. What's all that about? Right? Um, why do you need real time telemetry between cars and the pits? Um, if you give too much information for the driver, um, then you will make the driver uh, drive to the engineer rather than driving to his own seat of the pants and drive to you know to, to the racing that's unfolding around him. So we don't allow any real time telemetry. Um, uh, we don't allow any of that sort of stuff. So and that's actually what makes the racing even better because the guys that are driving the cars actually all they actually understand is the race around them. They're not understanding what their brake temperatures are. They're not understanding what their tyre temperatures are. They don't, they, don't, they don't have that knowledge. They just race uh, and they race hard and close because they don't know any different. They haven't got an engineer in their ear saying, listen, mate, you need to back off on the rear brakes a bit or you need to do this. They don't have all of that. They just get involved with racing. And I think that's all we all want to see. So that's part one of our chat with Alan Gow on the V8 Sleuth podcast powered by Timken. Stay tuned for part two. We talk about super touring in the 90s, the British Touring Car Championship and its boom and effectively bust. The battle for Bathurst in the late 90s where Channel 7, Channel 10, V8 supercars and super touring were all involved. He talks about his time working with James Courtney and he tackles the National Motor Racing Museum Couch Racer questions and the Motor Focus Top 10 Shootout. Now, if you're a big book nerd or a bookworm, you need to visit our online bookshop. Head to the V8 Sleuth website, v8sleuth.com.au, click on the bookshop tab, and it will take you to our store where we've got a wide range of items currently on sale, prices slashed on books and magazines. You can pre-order some of our new items too, of course, including the brand new DJR Cars History, 40 years of cars of DJR from 1980 to 2019. It's limited to just 3,000 copies. They're all signed by Dick Johnson, and we now have that book arriving this week as we speak to you on the podcast. So get your order in and don't miss out. That book, no doubt, will sell out. We love to keep you informed of what's going on, not just with the podcast, but with our website and with our business on a whole. So sign up to our newsletter and don't miss out. Head to the V8 Sleuth website, follow us on socials as well, and you won't miss a thing. Anyway, that's me done. Part one of Alan Gow is done on the V8 Sleuth podcast powered by Timkin. Make sure you join us for part two and all the other episodes. We'll chat soon. Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online, thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego, the number 2, and oil, and find out.